Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Glad that we're together today and glad that we have a chance to look into God's Word. We're actually going to be continuing our series on the book of 1 Corinthians this Sunday. We're in the fourth installment of that series that we've called Lego Church, Built to Be Together. Um, and, you know, if you have not been with us, you might be wondering why would we talk about Legos in connection to 1 Corinthians? Uh, the reason why we do that is because there's some similarities. There's, Legos are actually an apt analogy for the truth that God shares with us in the book of 1 Corinthians, because Legos are things that, when they are disconnected from each other, are kind of a mess, and they can be a hazard in your house. Um, but when they come together under direction and design, they can make something beautiful, something very useful. And that's really the way that we are as a church. We are uh, people who are disconnected, um, people that, that have difficulties and problems on our own, but together under the design of our Creator, God can use us to do something great. Now, the, the Lego creation you see behind me uh, it was someone's effort to take these disparate parts and to make alphabet. Uh, if you know who Elphaba is, then this makes sense. If you don't, you wonder why I've got a green Lego witch on the screen. But Elphaba is one of the lead characters in one of the most popular musicals that has ever been released on Broadway, and that's the musical Wicked. Uh, Wicked's actually coming to Oklahoma City this fall at the Civic Center Music Hall, and, and some of you will probably be going to see it uh, at that time um, as, as it comes to town. Now, the musical Wicked is really popular for a variety of reasons, I think. One reason I think it's popular is because it has familiar characters. Um, it tells kind of the backstory of a bunch of the characters in The Wizard of Oz. I think it's also popular, though, because it has some surprisingly deep storylines. Um, you walk out of there wanting to talk about the message of the musical with those you came with. Uh, the third reason, though, I think it's popular is, is obvious. It's because of the music. It's a musical. Music is catchy, and, and uh, you probably have a song or two on your iPod, or you listen to them on CD if you've ever heard some of the music. They're, they're catchy songs. And, and one of the songs that is really popular from the, the show is a duet between the two lead characters, Elphaba and Galinda. And they sing this song together called For Good. And it's, it's a beautiful song, and they, they reflect, even though they're very different, you know, Elphaba is the green-skinned one, and her more fair-skinned friend, uh, Glenda, and, and they, they sing this song, though, about how their lives have both impacted the other. And there's this, this great lyric in that song that says, like a comet pulled from orbit as it passes the sun, like a stream that meets a boulder in a distant wood. Who can say that I've been changed for the better? Because of you, I've been changed for good. Um, and that the song asks a great question. You know, it's somewhat obvious that those around us have changed us for good. They've changed us in a permanent way. I mean, I can't imagine me being me without the imprint of my parents, without the imprint of my sister, without the imprint of my wife or my son or Wildwood Community Church. I, I've been shaped in different ways um, by those who have come along in my life. But, but how can we say that that has been a definitively shaped for better? 
that's somewhat of a matter of opinion. I think that it's been for the better, but, but who can say? That's the words of the song. But, you know, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, uh, we can say definitively that we have been changed for good, we've been changed permanently, and we've been changed for the better. And that fundamental change that has changed us permanently and positively is a, a truth, a theological truth that the Apostle Paul taps into in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to give us a new sexual ethic. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today and see how our changing for good and for better impacts the way that we live out our ethical lives. So if you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 12 to 20, and, and in those verses we're going to see two things this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. The first thing we're going to see in these verses is this, that together we need God's truth to correct our bad ideas. Together we need God's truth to correct our bad ideas. We see this in verses 12 to 16. Well, where do we see that in the text? Well, what we find in these this section is that Paul is, is actually using what is known as a diatribe style of, of argument. In other words, he'll say something that they say, and then he'll refute it or argue back in the other direction. That's why in your Bible you might see some quotations at times in this section. That's because Paul is quoting things, slogans, that the, first, that the people in Corinthians were saying. And so, and then he would, he would argue against it. See, the people in Corinth had come up with some bad ideas that needed correcting with God's word. Well, what were those bad ideas? Well, one of those bad ideas had to do with a bad understanding of freedom. Look at what it says in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In those, in those verses, you notice the quotations around the statement, all things are lawful for me. They had a bad understanding of freedom. They thought that their freedom set them free to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And Paul said, you have a bad understanding of freedom if you think that your freedom allows you to do things that would hurt and not help others. I mean, to, to put it in, in very simple terms, we would not say that we are, are free so that we could take out a gun and shoot someone. No, we're, we're free so that we could pick up a shovel and we can help them. Paul's arguing against and the flaw in their logic. They were walking around saying, hey, we're free in Christ, so we can do whatever we want to do. And Paul says, you're missing the point. Your freedom is not so that you can hurt someone. Your freedom is so that you can help someone. You have a bad idea about freedom. But, but more than just freedom allowing us to, to help and not hurt, our freedom also, they had a bad idea that their, their freedom um, could do whatever they wanted to do, even if it, it hurt themselves. It can enslave them to something, as it says in the end of verse 12. Paul says, you're not set free in Christ so that you can become addicted to alcohol. You're not set free in Christ so that you can become addicted to, to drugs. You're not set free in Christ so that you can become addicted to buying stuff. You're not set free in Christ so that you can go forth and, and become addicted to the, the rush of, of, of sharing the latest gossip with someone. 
Because you have a bad understanding for freedom if you feel like it sets you free for anything because in Christ, as we follow him, we're set free to help and not hurt. We're set free to, to be free and not to become enslaved to something else. See, the Corinthians were walking around with this slogan, with this, this mantra, this theological saying, I'm, I'm, everything is lawful for me. I can do whatever I want to do. And they were using that as this theological trump card that allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do. They had a bad idea about freedom. But they also had a bad idea about something else. They had a bad idea about the body. Verse 13 says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. They were walking around saying, hey, guess what? We can do whatever we want to do because it's only things that occur outside my body, and it's nothing that impacts my spirit or my soul, and so I can do whatever I want to do. Um, and and they, were, they were anchoring this probably back to, they'd heard Paul say something like, hey, guys, guess what? You can eat bacon now. Um, you can eat whatever you want to do. And they were thinking, hey, if it's okay for us to satisfy our physical appetites by eating any food that we want to eat, then it must be okay for us to satisfy any appetite that we have because it's just something that we do with our bodies. But, but Paul is going to argue against that and say, hey, wait, you guys have it wrong. You have it, you have it, you have it messed up because God actually values the body. God actually one day will resurrect the body. He's going to use that in argumentation in the verses ahead. See, they had some bad ideas, and they were using them as slogans or theological mantras that were allowing them uh, to sin, that were justifying sin. And, and specifically, the people in Corinth were using these, these sayings that, that I can do whatever I want to do, and that I, you know, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're, they're using those kinds of, of slogans and mantras in order to justify sin in the sexual arena. Um, you may have read through this before, and you see in verse 13 where Paul talks about food, and then you see later on where he talks about sex, and you think he, he mentioned those two together just because he was a man. Um, that's not true. There was a reason for this. Um, Paul is, is going to go from food to sex because they were using this line of thinking about food as a rationale that justified their sexual sin. See, Corinth was an interesting city. It was a city that was located on an isthmus in the nation of Greece, and um, it was located between two seas. And there was a lot of traffic that would go through the city of Corinth because you could pull your boat up to this side of the isthmus, they would pick up the boat, they would walk it across the land, and they would place it in the water on the other side. And you could avoid having to float all the way around all of Greece. There was a lot of traffic through Corinth as a result. Well, as a town with a lot of sailors, there also developed an industry that was pretty popular, and that was the industry of prostitution. There was a, a big rock in town that was called the Acro Corinth. It was an 1,800-foot-high rock face. And on top of that rock was a, uh, was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And ancient writers have said that as many as a 1,000 prostitutes worked in that temple. Um, and the, the believers in Corinth, though they had come and trusted in Christ, had looked for some kind of theological slogan or some kind of idea that would justify their behavior of visiting those prostitutes. 
They wanted to make it seem okay that they were going and doing that. And so they came up with these little slogans that they, that they tried to tie there. And you know what? They tried to tie some of those slogans even back to Paul. Some of these things are things that Paul probably said. When it came to why is it okay for Jewish people now to eat foods that God restricted in the Old Testament, Paul would say that God has opened that door and, and food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. You're, you can You can eat what you want to eat. Well, they had, they had taken that phrase and they thought, we've found our justification that allows us to go and visit the, the brothel. And they had, they had placed it over the top of that. But, but that was never the intention of what Paul had said. They, they had taken something they probably heard Paul say about how we're, we're, we're free from the law, and they had used that as a rationale and an argument that allowed them to go and do whatever they wanted to do. They, they had taken a little bit of truth, they had strained it through not God's word, but they had strained it through their culture and they'd come out with a slogan that made them feel good about sinning. And Paul confronts them and corrects them from God's word. Look at what, the way that he does that from the second part of verse 13. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, it's interesting when he begins that phrase, when he begins talking about that, um, that he doesn't say that, that God is against sex in general. As a matter of fact, God created sex and God made it fun. So this is not saying that sex is something that God is against. It says that sexual immorality is a problem for people because our bodies were not just created for sexual desires, they were created for more than that. They were created to live in relationship with God. That's, that's the point of the passage. Not that, that he didn't create us as that as a part of our life, but that should not be the focus of our life. That should not be the trump card of our life. And God created our sexual desires to be used in specific ways between a husband and a wife. That's how God created it. That's the way it was in the Garden of Eden, and that's the plan that God has throughout Scripture, or the sexual area of our lives. And anything that goes beyond that, whether it's pornography or whether it's extramarital affair or or homosexuality, all those kinds of things would be things that are taking place outside of that relationship of a husband and wife, and therefore would be encompassed in this phrase sexual immorality. Now, when you think about what, what God is saying here, he's saying that sex is good in this one spot, but don't, if you go out in these other areas, it's, it's just not It's not what you were created for. You were created for something more than that. See, they were saying, I ought to be able to eat, I can eat whatever I want to eat, so I ought to be able to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. And Paul says, that's thinking like an animal, not like someone who's created in the image of God. Animals don't differentiate their their instincts and their urges. They just go and do them. A good good example of that, this last uh, uh, week, we were at a petting zoo, and my son was there, and he was petting this sheep that seemed a little angry. Uh, this sheep was named Edward. I think I figured out why Edward was angry. Edward was actually a girl. They named this girl sheep Edward, so obviously that made it really angry. He's like a boy named Sue, and he, he was always just coming up and like putting his foot up and, and messing with you and various things, and, and Josh is in there right there. He's got the little cowboy hat on. He's petting the sheep in the, in the petting zoo. But you know what? That sheep is in that petting zoo. He is surrounded by all kinds of good hay. But you know what that sheep wanted to do? It wanted to eat his hat. 
And so there's my son getting attacked by a sheep who is eating this hat. Now, what is better to eat, both by taste and by nutrition? Well, I I don't know. I've never eaten what it eats. But I'm guessing, based on the fact that they are feeding it hay and not hats, that it's better for the sheep to eat the hay and not the hat. But the sheep can't tell the difference. The sheep just says, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat whatever I can. Hay, hat, doesn't matter. And this is the problem with with people, right? God says, I have this wonderful barn full of hay for you in the sexual area of your life. It's, It's your husband or it's your wife. And if you're not married, it's your future husband or your future wife or whatever that is. That there is, there's a, 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 blessing that God has, and it's good for you, and it's nutritious. But the problem is we walk around, and we want to nibble on a bunch of hats. Whether it's pornography, it's, it's someone who's not our spouse, it's, it's someone, if you're, if you're not, not yet married, it's somebody in your, that you're dating or whatever, you think, you know what, I'm going to do this anyway. What, what happens there is you're not being a human, you're being an animal. You're being a dumb sheep. You're eating a hat instead of the hay. See, God says, It's not sex and food are not equivalent because God says that there's something better for you than that. Warren Wearsby, in reflecting on this passage, says this. It says, sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it is not his, and he'll one day pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There's safety, security, and he will collect dividends. Sex within marriage can build a relationship that brings joy in the future, but sex apart from marriage has a way of weakening future relationships, as every Christian marriage counselor will tell you. See, God wants something for you. He's created you to live in relationship with Him, and when we're in relationship with Him, He gives us good things, but we shouldn't just walk around thinking that every desire we have is something that He wants us to fulfill. He goes on, God raised the Lord, verse 14, and will also raise us up by his power. This is the idea that our body has dignity. The things we do with our body matters because God is present with it and God has a future for it. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's saying that there is something very spiritual and deep that has come upon a believer in Christ, and that is that we have become united with him, that God is very present with us. And so if God is present with us, then his holiness is with us, and we should not take that holiness and connect it to something unholy in an action that is unholy. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's repulsive to us when we think about it in the abstract, but in the reality of our lives, many times we forget it. So we engage in activity that is repulsive to God because we're joining that which is owned by Christ with that which is not his desire. Now, the people in Corinth had some bad ideas that need corrected by God's truth. But the question is, do we? Is this just a unique first century problem and it it doesn't exist today? 
Is it a unique first century problem in the sexual arena and it doesn't exist today? Well, that, that is just not true. All the time, I hear phrases that are uttered that are slogans that people have come up with to help them feel good about sinning in the sexual area of their life. Um, I'll tell you one, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've said this to yourself. These are things that I've, I've thought too. Why would God give me these desires? It's a little phrase. Sounds spiritual, it sounds blessed, it's got God in it. Um, why would God give me these desires? I, 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 several years ago, I had somebody come in to my office in a counseling situation with their spouse, and they were laying out the scenario for me, which is that they wanted to engage in, or one of the partners wanted to engage in sexual relationship outside of the marriage, and that that was okay, and, and his rationale was, was just that. You know, why would God give me these desires if he didn't want me to do it? Why do sheep eat hats? Because they're too dumb to know the difference between the hat and the hay. They need a, they need a farmer, a rancher to point them in the right direction so that they can be healthy. We need a, a savior who can point us in the right direction to show us that. But it's a slogan that we'll say, why would God give me these desires if I wasn't supposed to do something with it? How about this one? There's kind of a pornography hierarchy. I really want to honor God, and so I'm going to just watch pornography instead of doing something with somebody else. Heard that one too. Again, you know, you can sound right. It can make you feel better about what you're doing, but the reality is that's, that's not what God wants for us, eating a hat instead of waiting for the hay. Another one you might hear, this is particularly used a lot by people who struggle with homosexual temptation. I, that's just the way I am. Just the way I am. Well, what are those sayings? What are those phrases? Uh, There's some kind of a, of a theological slogan or phrase that we've added to our deck of cards, and we use it as a trump card to we, so we feel good about the sin that we're committing. And Paul says, we have some bad ideas. Stop laying those cards on the table. You need to allow those ideas to be corrected by God's truth. And that's what Paul is doing for us here. Now, what do we do in light of that? Knowing that, that you and I, I mean, we're, we're people like the people in Corinth. We've, we've got bad ideas that need some correcting. What are some things that we can do that can help? One thing we can do is that we can spend time in personal study of God's Word. We need to know what it says. We need to read it so that we can make differentiations between little slogans and phrases that we hear others say and what is really God's truth. We need to be able to make those determinations. Second thing we can do is we can be in some community. You know, it's much easier to embrace truth and head in the right direction when others around us are doing the same thing. There's a momentum that comes with being around people who are walking with God and who are embracing His truth. It makes it easier for us to walk with God and embrace His truth. There's an inertia with that. And so we need to be in community. It's part of the reason why we get together on Sundays. It's part of the reason why you get together in your small group. Also, we need to take every idea that we hear and we get and we need to strain it, not through our culture, but through the Word. There's a lot of ideas that we want to strain through our culture and they look pretty good, but when strained against God's Word, maybe they need to be filtered out a bit. See, we have some bad ideas and together we need God's truth to correct those ideas within us. That's the first thing we're going to see from these verses. The second thing, though, is this. The second thing is, that together in Christ, we're not our own, 
and we're not alone. We see this in verses 17 to 20. Together in Christ, we are not our own, and we're not alone. Now, some of this is echoing back to the things we saw in the previous verses, and that has to do with this, this notion that we are in Christ. Look at what it says in verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, when we have trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, the same one that rested upon Jesus at his baptism in visible form through the dove, and the same spirit that empowered him to to live through life, that same spirit resides within every believer in Christ. We have one spirit with him. There is something holy about anyone who has trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin because we have been united with him in a very deep way. That has very tangible and very real applications in our lives. You know, when we think about, uh, there, there are a number of things that we would not do because in, in a church. You just wouldn't do it in a church. Well, why would you not do it in a church? Certain sinful activity you wouldn't engage in here. Why? Because there's a sense of, well, that's God's house. I'm not gonna do that in God's house. But, but this idea for a believer is, is very convicting, it's very challenging, but it's also very wonderful. It's this idea that, that Jesus is with the believer, whether they're in God's house or they are in their house. Wherever you are, the Spirit of God is present. And it's a, a strong argument for following Christ and not running away from him, being shaped by his truth, having a, a sexual ethic that, that honors God and not walks away from him. Is because God is present with you always. Verse 18 continues, every other sin, uh, this is the second half of verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what is it that he is really getting at in that verse about our, our connection or identity with Christ? This is a verse that is debated by scholars who read this passage, but I, I'm going to give you my best understanding of it. There, there are some different views of this. I'll give you my best understanding. I believe that the second half of verse 18, those words you see on the screen behind me, I think that that is actually another one of these phrases that the Corinthian people were saying as a justification for their sin. And, and the reason why I feel that is, is, is twofold. One, that's the style that he's walking through, this diatribe style back and forth. The second reason why I think he I think that's so is that the word other there is actually not present in the original language. That word other has been added by translators to help us kind of smooth out the passage. And they, they took some um, a little bit of, of interpretation as they put that word in there. Although the phrase literally says, every sin a person commits is outside the body. I think that that's the the quote. That's the phrase that they were saying. In other words, I can do whatever I want to do when I sin with my body because, you know what, it's just, just something I do with my body. It's just something outside my body. It didn't really impact me. I'm spirit. I'm this, this identity in Christ. And so I'm, I can do whatever I want to do with my body because it doesn't really impact inside. And Paul says, that is just a bunch of hooey. There's no truth in that, guys, because what we do with our bodies is connected to our soul. We are people. God created us with all of these parts, but it's together in a person. What we do with our bodies matters. And and Paul refutes that. He says, every sin, you're saying every sin a person commits is outside the body, but I'll tell you this, a sexually immoral person is doing something that's going to impact their life. Don't do it. Don't eat the hat. 
verse 19 and 20. Talk about this idea that we're not our own and we're not alone. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, that last part, I want to deal with that first. We're not our own. We've been purchased with a price. He gave me a strong appeal to Christians here. He's saying that, that you have been bought by Christ, and, and you are now his. Now, isn't that an interesting turn of phrase in a passage that talks about prostitution? And you know, when, when you hear that phrase, you might even think um, that, it, that it sounds kind of bad. I don't want to be bought by someone. That makes, makes me feel cheap or, or demeaned. And with that, we're thinking like a prostitution. Somebody buys somebody else's body to do bad things to it. Paul's not saying that. You know, we, we partner with a ministry down in Nicaragua um, that, that helps people leave this environment. And in some cases, there has to be a bounty paid in order to set that person free. A price is paid so that person is not enslaved to being a prostitute, but they now have an opportunity to live a free life. That's really what this idea is talking about. God in Christ has purchased us not to do bad things to us, but he's purchased us to set us free for the things that we were created for. And that he uses that, that fact that we're not our own, that we've been bought with this price, we've been set free in Christ. He uses that as a motivation not to continue sinning, but to follow him everywhere he goes. And we're not alone. He uses language there of a temple, and he says that your, your body is a, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is really interesting grammatically, and how he uses singulars and plurals. There's a one plural in that phrase, and that is the plural your. It's, it's all of us collectively. It's all of our different parts. But we are saved into one singular body. We are saved into one singular temple. In other words, there is a collective nature to us and that's why we, we should encourage one another to not engage in this kind of behavior because it impacts the temple. It impacts God's reputation. It impacts the, the, the picture of what God has to offer us in this world. So we ought to be encouraging to one another to live into um, this ethic that God lays out. I mean, to put it simply in this whole equation, he's saying, I want you to live by a different sexual ethic, an ethic that is outlined for us in Scripture because you are not who you were. I want you to live by a different ethic because you're different. The same thing could be said of us. We are to live by a different sexual ethic because we are in Christ. We're different. And our lives should look that way. He concludes this idea in the beginning of verse 18 with a, with a single command, and that is that we are to, in light of all of this, we are to flee from sexual immorality. Now, what does it mean to flee? Well, it means to get out of there. How's that for Greek exegesis? It means don't go there. Stay away from it. Don't dabble in it. Say what it means. If you're married, it means don't flirt with somebody of the opposite sex just so you feel better. Don't stroke your own ego by flirting in, with somebody else. Thinking in your mind, you know what? I'm going to... Um, I, I know it's not going to go anywhere, but I'm going to flirt with him anyway just so I, I feel good about the situation. 
And you know what? Sometimes people will do that and think, you know what? I'm going to do all that, but I'm going to call it freedom in Christ. You know what the, the Word of God says to that? It says flee. Don't do that. Don't see how close you can get to that. Stay away. This is what it looks like when it comes to watching things. It means don't, don't watch the most provocative things you can, getting as close to the line as you can. You know, it's in your mind you're thinking, well, it's not pornography, and you watch as close as you can. It says, no, don't, don't dabble in that. Flee. Get away. It means if you're, if you're dating someone right now. Fleeing means I'm not going to see how, how close I can get, how, how far we can go. It says, you know, we're going to stop well short of that point. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't have conversations with people of the opposite sex. It just means that we're not going to have those conversations in such a way that might be provocative at all. It doesn't mean that we're not going to watch anything that's entertaining. It just means that we're going to draw the line short of what things that we know we shouldn't see. And the reason why we do that is because we don't want to ever find ourselves in a spot where we're joining who we are in Christ with something that is unholy. I'm going to have the worship team come up, and we're going to close in song here in just a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to share a thought with you guys. You know, anytime you talk about uh, sexual immorality, and you talk about sin in this area. Here, here's, here's the reality of it. When we sin in this area of our lives, it affects us in a deep and an emotional way. There, there are things that we remember in our mind, um, all those kinds of things. And, and no doubt, as we go through this, there are, are those in this room, including me, who have sorrow in your heart because of this and, and shame. And you just want to get away from it. And here's the great news. It's not good news. It is great news. The great news in Christ is that we have an opportunity for something different. And back in chapter 6, verse 11, the verse that precedes all of these things we just saw, Paul says this. He says, and such were some of you. And in by that, he's, he's, he's just gone through this laundry list of sins that they had committed, including a variety of sexual sins. They, this, it's a long list because the Corinthians were very creative in how they sinned. And you know what? We are too. And he goes through this long list and he says, such were some of you. You used to be identified by these things. But he continues and he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What he's saying is these same people who had screwed up in verses 12 to 20 were the same people that were not identified by that sin in verse 11. And if you have fallen short in this area in the past, I don't want you to spend today looking backwards. I want you to spend today looking up and reflecting on the fact that you have been cleaned of that past by God. And I want you to, to look forward to the decisions that you can make from this point forward, living in light of the reality of who you are. And so we're going to close today by singing this great song that talks about the grace of God, because we need grace in this area. We need grace in every area, but we feel it in this area. And so we're going to sing about the amazing grace of God, 
who has taken off the chains that bind us in this area so that we might follow him. Please stand and join us.